Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. All right, hallelujah, Shabbat shalom. We're in an ongoing series on the Epistle of 1 John. Today's part five, and we're going to finish, actually finish chapter one today and begin chapter two. We're going to focus today on Yeshua being our advocate and our atoning sacrifice. So we're going to begin with 1 John 1, 1 through uh, 2, 2. That which was from the beginning, which we've heard and which we've seen, which seen with our eyes, which we've looked at it and touched with our hands, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We've seen it. We testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, uh, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we've seen and heard, so that you may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Yeshua the Messiah. We write this to you to make our joy complete. This is the message we've heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and don't live out the truth. But if you walk in the light, as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another And the blood of Yeshua, his son, purifies us from all sin. If you claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you claim we haven't sinned, we make him out to be a liar. And his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Yeshua, the Messiah, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice, the kippurah, for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Amen. John says, we've looked at with our eyes and we touched with our hands the word of life. The word of life is John's name for Yeshua. But it's also telling us that Yeshua is the word. Uh, He's the divine word. He was with the Father from all eternity, uh, and he became human, became flesh. And John says, we saw him, uh, we heard him, we touched him. And verse 2 says that John and the apostles, they were commissioned uh, to testify to and and to proclaim the message of eternal life in Messiah Yeshua. Why? What's the goal? What's the outcome? What's the purpose of John's epistle? What was the whole purpose of Yeshua training the apostles to go out? Look at 1 John 1, verses 3 and 4 again. We proclaim to you what we've seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Yeshua the Messiah. We write this to make our joy complete. John's saying that that we, the apostles, we have fellowship with God himself, with God the Father, God the Son, and we want you to have the same fellowship as we have. We want you to share in this fellowship. And only then will our joy be complete. So that's what this epistle is all about. That God is not some unknowable, uh, undefinable force. No. Rather, he is a God that you can have fellowship with. So let's on the overhead. Let's look at three things. Number one, what is fellowship with God? Number two, what does it actually look like? And three, How can you have it? So number one, what is fellowship with God? John connects this concept uh, with walking. 
Uh, look at First uh, John 1, 7. He says, if we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship with, with one another, and the blood of Yeshua, his son, purifies us from all sin. Um, but look at First John 2, verse 4. Those who say, I know him, but don't do what he commands, are liars, and the truth's not in them. So uh, on the overhead, John uses these three terms interchangeably. Uh, 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 fellowship with, with God, uh, walking with God, and knowing God. Now, now walking with God uh, and personally knowing God are widely used terms throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. Uh, these are very Jewish terms uh, that John's using. Uh, at the beginning of the Torah, Genesis 5, it, it says that Enoch walked with God. Uh, Genesis 9, Noah walked with God. Uh, Genesis 17, uh, God calls Abraham and says, walk before me. Uh, look at Micah 6, verse 8. He's shown you, O man, what's good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do, act justly and have mercy and to walk humbly before your God. We're commanded to walk with God. Not all Israelites walked with God. We're also told the ultimate goal is to personally know him. Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 31. Days are coming, declares the Lord. When, when I make a brit a, a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It won't be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I'll put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I'll be their God. They'll be my people. The longer will they teach their neighbors or say to one another, know the Lord, because they'll all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. Amen. That's the future promise of the millennial kingdom for all of us to know the Lord. Now, what does it mean to, to walk with God? Uh, what does it mean to, to personally know him? Uh, on the overhead, it, it, it means two, two main things. Uh, first of all, it means a heart experience as opposed to mere external observances. All the Israelites were in the Mosaic Covenant, uh, and all the male Israelites had the physical sign of the covenant, circumcision. And yet God says in Jeremiah 31 and elsewhere that they did not all know me. Uh, they did not all walk with me. In fact, Moses himself says that the goal is not just the outward circumcision in your flesh, but the true inward circumcision of your heart. Look at Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your hearts, and be no longer stubborn. And so knowing God personally, knowing him, has to do with, with heart experience. It's not just something you do when you come to shul. Uh, you can be Jewish. Uh, you can follow the Mosaic Covenant and, and the Torah. Uh, you can attend shul. Uh, you can be circumcised. Uh, you can be immersed in the waters of mikvah. Uh, you, can, you can have a bower about mitzvah. Uh, you can do all the traditional liturgical prayers. You can believe in God. But do you know him personally? through trusting in his son, Yeshua, the Messiah, the divine son of God, the divine Messiah, the Holy One of Israel. Indeed, look at John 17, verse 3. It says, this is eternal life, to know you, Lord, and Yeshua, the Messiah, whom you sent. Indeed, John says in, in John 3, 20, uh, 3, 36, whoever believes in the son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. 
So knowing Yeshua is everything. And it involves not just a confession of faith, but a true heart experience. Whereby the Lord takes away your heart of stone, like we saw in, in the kids' video today, <laughs> and gives you a heart of flesh. And he places his spirit within you. It involves nothing less than a supernatural inner transformation, whereby you become a new creation in Messiah Yeshua. I quoted this recently, but it's so powerful, I'm, I'm going to quote it again. This is regarding this inner transformation, this walking with God. It's from the journal of, of, of Daniel Steele, this 19th century British minister. In the overhead, he says this. He writes in his journal, Almost every week, sometimes every day now, a pressure of his great love comes down on my heart with the light of his radiant presence. The inner spot of my heart has been touched and its flintiness has been melted in the presence of love divine, all loves exceeding. He's saying, in my personal prayer life, sometimes once a week, sometimes every day, a pressure of God's great love comes down upon my heart with the light of his radiant presence. The inner spot is touched. And what does he mean? On the overhead, this is what he's saying. He's saying, my heart is melting. The flintiness, the hardness is melting away. Melting away the anger, melting away the fear and the doubt, melting away the jealousy and the pride and the superiority and judgmentalism, melting away gossip and, and slander, melting away unforgiveness and grudges, melting away lust and carnality and addiction. And the overhead, that is fellowship with God. That's walking with God. That's personally knowing God. That is a heart experience on the overhead, but it's also a heart experience that happens to be based on objective truth, the truth of the gospel. Look at the structure of the first four verses of First John. John wants you to have fellowship with God. That's, an, that's the experience. But what is that, that fellowship based on? What's the foundation for that fellowship? He says it's the apostolic truth. Verses 1 to 2 of 1 John chapter 1 says, we've seen who he is. Uh, uh, we've looked upon him. We've heard him. We've touched him. This is the apostle testifying. These are eyewitness accounts. Uh, he wrote a whole gospel about it. John's saying, if you want to have this inner subjective heart experience, it must be based on the objective truth of the gospel. Uh, and so walking with God, it's not mysticism. It's not some kind of Kabbalistic system. It's not esoteric. It's not mystical. No, it's based on the objective truth of the gospel as recorded in the written scriptures. So, for example, let's say someone says, yes, uh, I know I'm married to this person, but the Lord showed me that he wants me to have an affair with this person. This other person is the one for me. God is showing me this. But the problem is, in the scriptures of the Ten Commandments, God has revealed himself as the God who's against adultery. And I know people can get creative in trying to justify their sin, but this is so clear. And what John is saying is, if you want to have fellowship with God, it's got to be the God who's revealed himself in the Bible, in his word, in the scriptures, uh, the Hebrew scriptures and the New Covenant scriptures, uh, in what the apostles and the prophets say about who God is. Otherwise, you're just making up a God. And no matter what you say, you don't have a personal relationship with God because you can't have a personal relationship with, with somebody you just made up. Famous theologian uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer on the overhead, uh, he, he's the one who withstood the Nazis and, and was killed for it. Uh, he writes this. If it's I who say uh, where God will be, uh, if I'm the one who defines God, if I say, well, I believe God's like this, uh, if I say, 
who God will be, I will always find there a false God. A God who in some way corresponds to me. A God who's, who's agreeable to me. Who fits in with my nature. You hear what Bonhoeffer is saying. If you say, well, God has shown me that I'm supposed to have an affair with, with, with her. Uh, what you're really saying is, well, I've had this subjective experience of God, uh, so it must be right. But in the overhead, Bonhoeffer is saying, if you make up a God who's just a, a projection of your own wishes, you don't really have a personal God. Uh, you don't have a God who can, uh, next overhead, uh, you don't have a God who can talk back. Uh, you don't have a God who can, who can say something offensive to you. You don't have a God who can disagree with you because it's just you. You've invented a God who's just a projection of you. But on the overhead. But if God is a real person and you're in a personal relationship with him, sometimes he's going to argue with you. Uh, he's going to say things in his word that challenge you uh, and insult your sensibilities and, and that you don't like. But only if you have a God who's based on the objective revelation of, of the scriptures do you have a real God a personal God, a God who you could actually get in an argument with. If you say, well, I like to think of God as being like this. You're just making up a God, then you don't have a personal relationship anymore. It's just a projection of you. It is a false God. It's nothing but you projected out into the universe. And therefore, it's extremely important for us to see that, number one, you must have this hard experience. Uh, you're not a believer if you don't personally know Yeshua. You're not a Yeshua follower if you don't sense his love shed abroad in your heart. And you, and, uh, and you really have this, this, this present of this, the uh, presence through the indwelling of his spirit that you sense within you. And yet, number two, at the same time, it, it must be based on the objective written body of truth as set forth in the scriptures, as set forth in his word. Accepting what the Bible says about who God the Father is and who God the Son is uh, and who, who they are and what they've done for you uh, and the commands they give to you and the promises they make for you. You must receive and you must embrace this and build your life on it. Knowing God is when the truth begins to shine. You know that you know God when the truth is not just something you subscribe to. Uh, it isn't something you just profess. But that when the truth of God begins to shine within you. So let's say, for example, you're facing danger. Uh, real danger, real trouble. And you know what the Bible says about God? He's, he's completely sovereign. And he's in charge of everything. Uh, and you know that the Bible also says that uh, he's absolutely loving and, and committed to you. But if you say, well, yeah, I know God loves me. I know God's in charge of everything, but I'm still falling to pieces. Uh, then these truths, these truths are of no real comfort to me. Then there's a sense in which you're not knowing God. Uh, you know about God. You've got a mental picture and an image and belief in God. But when the truth begins to shine... You begin to feel the presence of his love in your heart. It begins to melt your flintiness. It melts your hardness. You begin to say, yes, the Lord loves me. And he's in charge. So what am I afraid of? I can do it. I can handle it. Uh, when that happens, when the penny drops, now you're knowing God. It's on the overhead. So knowing God is when the, the, the subjective appropriation of, of his objective truth occurs. So number one, that's what, uh, that's what uh, uh, fellowship with God is. So number two, on the next uh, oversight, oh, there we go. Number two, what does it actually look like? Five, how can we know if we know God? Let me give you five descriptors that are either stated or implied uh, in our text of, of how you know you, you know God. 
So number one, first of all, knowing God means delighting in his presence. And the overhead. Remember what Daniel Steele said. Almost every week, sometimes every day, a pressure of his great love comes down upon my heart with the light of his radiant presence. He says, once a week, at least once a week, I really sense his presence in a special way. And sometimes every day. Which shows this isn't something, by the way, that happens all the time. But when it happens, you never forget it. And the idea of walking with God or having fellowship with God, it implies this face-to-face relationship, panim al-panim. It's more than just saying your prayers. It's more than just coming to shul. It's more than just outward religious rituals, but sensing the very presence of God in your life. So here's my question. Does this happen to you? You may say, well, how do I know? Well, first note that a lot of people mistake a general feeling of inspiration for the presence of God. People say, well, I was out of my boat on the water. It was a beautiful day. And I really think that, that I kind of sense his presence. Or I was listening to my, my favorite pop song. I really sense his presence. Well, well maybe. Uh, but, but here's what I want you to consider. Go to the Psalms. Go to Psalm 63. Go to Psalm 84. Go to the many Psalms where the psalmist says, I long for your presence. Like a thirsty man in the desert. On the overhead. Once you've actually experienced his presence, his absence is almost unbearable. There's a lot of people who claim to have experienced God with this kind of general feeling of inspiration, uh, like watching a sunset or listening to a great music that they like. But the other 99% of the time, these same people, they walk around like zombies (laughs) with no thought of God at all, totally indifferent to him. But once you've really experienced the presence of God, it's painful to experience his absence. In fact, ironically, a sharp sense of the absence of God is a sign that you know his presence. Why? On the overhead. Uh, Because an awareness of his absence is actually a sign of his presence because if you've never known his presence, you wouldn't feel his absence. So therefore, to really know God means sometimes you just delight in his presence. Uh, You feel it come down on you from time to time. On the overhead, number two. Second, knowing God also means intimate two-way communication. It means talking to him and listening to him. Just like with any other relationship, right? If you're spending time with someone uh, and, and you're meeting with someone, you're conversing with someone, you're hearing them and you're talking to them. If you only hear someone, that's not a relationship. If you only talk to someone, that's not a relationship. It has to be both give and take, back and forth. And the most common way to speak to God, of course, is through prayer. The most common way to hear from him is through the scriptures, through Bible study, Bible meditation. Now, by the way, there are ways to do Bible study and ways to do prayer uh, that that, that are expressions of knowing God. uh, And there are ways to do it that do not involve knowing him at all. There are ways of praying that's just rote uh, and repetitious and, and routine, not flowing freely from your heart, especially if it's in a foreign language, not your own native tongue. There's also ways of praying, even if it's in your native language, even if it's in your own tongue, your own words, where God is just some ATM window. (laughs) You go to God because you want things from him. And therefore, there's a way of saying your prayers in which there's no real fellowship with God on the overhead. But when you have a prayer life in which there's fellowship with God, you want to be in his presence just because you want to be in his presence. 
There's no agenda. One of the ways you can tell the difference between a prayer life that's in accord with fellowship with God and one that isn't is that a prayer life that doesn't accord with fellowship with God, sorry, is a prayer life that's very sporadic, very temporary and sporadic. That's not in accord with fellowship with him. So when things go bad, when you have problems in your life, you start to pray. When things get better or when you get busy, you stop. But the mark of a person who has fellowship with God is that their prayer life is not sporadic, it's steady. You know why? If you know the Lord, what's your motivation to pray? What's the motivation that's always there? Uh, You can't stand his absence. In contrast, people who can go weeks and weeks without praying, uh, and then something goes wrong, and then you start to pray, that's a sign of a lack of a vibrant relationship with the Lord. So ask yourself, have I really experienced his presence Because once you experience his presence, his absence just kills you. And that's what keeps you coming back to God. It keeps you coming back to him on a daily basis in prayer as a priority, no matter how busy you are. And regardless of whether things are going well or going poorly, ask yourself, do I have a prayer life like that? A prayer life that's regular. A prayer life that's filled with adoration. People who do ATM window prayer... They don't spend much time praising God with adoration. Uh, uh, They're primarily there just to get something. Husbands, do prayer with your wives. Parents, do prayer with your kids. In addition to adoration, do you spend time in prayer repenting? Looking at your life, examining your life, examining yourself, renouncing things you know should not be in your life. Fellowship with God is prayer filled with adoration. It's filled with repentance. It's a type of prayer that's filled with thanksgiving. And in addition to speaking to God in prayer, fellowship with God is also listening to him through his word. Because his word is alive, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It will speak to you through through his word. It will speak to your heart. So you need to be daily reading the Bible, understanding it in context, studying what the author's intent was when he wrote this book or this epistle uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This takes study. You can't just rip a Bible verse out of context, uh, uh, make it mean whatever you want it to mean. You can't just focus on random verses and ignore the context. So so here's an example. God, what are you saying to me today? You close your eyes, you open the Bible, you you look down, look at the verse, Judas went out and hanged himself. (laughs) Well, well, I don't know about that. Let's give God another chance. Speak to me, Lord. You close your eyes, open the Bible, you look down, Go and do likewise. <laughs> oh, well, no, 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 no. What, guys, let's give God one more chance. You open the Bible, you look down, it says, and what you do, do quickly. <laughs> you cannot just rip the Bible out of context. Otherwise, you can make it say anything you want or anything you don't want. <laughs> In which case, God is not really speaking to you. You're just getting out of it whatever you want to get out of it. But it's also a danger to study the Bible simply just for information. Simply so you can say, now I know what this verse means. Now I know what the right doctrine is. Now I know what the biblical position on this is and that is. But the ultimate goal of studying the Bible, of reading the Bible, is not information, but so that you may have fellowship with God. Imagine going to a beautiful landscape, a beautiful landscape, and then immediately going down on your knees and doing soil testing. (laughs) You see the composition of the soil. Uh, and looking at the trees to see the quality and the makeup of the timber. 
uh, and doing minute study of the botanical life in the area, but never standing back and taking it all in and saying, wow, look at this magnificent sight. And that's how a lot of people, sadly, study the Bible. Uh, They're fixated on what does this mean and what does that mean on the overhead, but they're never standing back and, and, and asking, what does this passage tell me about God so that I can adore him more? What does this passage tell me about my own heart so that I can repent? What does this passage tell me about Yeshua so that I can praise him for what he's done for me? That's biblical meditation. That's standing back and taking in the big picture. So ask yourself, do I know what it's like to study his word and have it speak to me by me standing back and seeing and meditating on the beauty of the Lord? Now, this is not neglecting careful study, and it's not ripping it out of context, but it's both study and meditation. It's it's both and, not either or. And it's two-way communication. It's hearing from the Lord every day through his word and talking to him every day in prayer, not just pushing the ATM button and not just doing academic study and saying, now I know what this verse means, but really communing with the Lord, having fellowship with God, walking with Yeshua, personally knowing him. People who have fellowship with God hear him and speak to him on the overhead. So that's number one, delighting in his presence. Number two, intimate two-way communication. A third distinctive of, of, of knowing God is you lose your freedom in order to gain a greater freedom. If you really want to be free and live your life the way you want to live it, uh, don't get into any personal relationships. <laughs> Even a close friendship, because your friend will say sometimes, he'll criticize you, and he'll say, why did you do that without asking me? Why did you make this important decision without talking to me about it? And if you really want to keep your freedom, never fall in love. And don't even think about getting married. <laughs> I remember when Elizabeth and I were first married, uh, many, many years ago, this, uh, this month is our 40th anniversary. <laughs> Not not sure how she's put up with me. (laughs) But when we were first married, I typically come home from work at a certain time from the office, let's say 7 o'clock. But one day I had some errands to run, and I didn't come home until like 7.30. And my new bride, Elizabeth, was all distraught. Where have you been? Why didn't you tell me you'd be late? You know, I cooked dinner. And of course, this was in the dark ages before cell phones. (laughs) I think I said something stupid like, if I'm going to be 30 minutes late, do I have to tell you? (laughs) And the answer was, earth to husband, yes. (laughs) And I suddenly realized, I now have new obligations as a husband. I don't have the same unfettered freedom I did when I was single. And I hadn't really thought about it much until then. (laughs) The point is, there's no way to get into a personal relationship without losing some of your freedom on the overhead. One of the ways you know Yeshua is a personal being in the middle of your life is he's going to do all kinds of things to change you, to change your life, to put his finger on things in your life, uh, and to mess you up. <laughs> Indeed, John says this. Look at the First John 1, verse 6. If you claim to have fellowship with him, but we walk in the dark, we lie. We don't live out the truth. If you claim to know God, and yet you live however you want to live, uh, you don't know him. You're not letting him put the, his finger on things in your life that are wrong. Uh, uh, and, that, and that shows you don't have a personal relationship with him at all. 
You may come to shul for inspiration. You may read your Bible. You may pray to God when you have a problem. But you basically live the way you want to live. If this is you, you don't know God. You're not walking with him. You do not have fellowship with him. Because when you get into a love relationship, both parties become more and more transparent to each other and therefore more and more vulnerable and therefore more and more lose their freedom. So if you don't want to lose your freedom, never fall in love. (laughs) But the more you get into a true love relationship, the more both sides lose their freedom but gain a new kind of freedom. The freedom that comes from having your heart filled with the love of the other person. The ability to face life. The ability to know uh, who, you, uh, who you are through the love of that other person. You lose your freedom, but you gain uh, a new kind, a greater kind of richness and freedom that you never had before. Has this happened to you with the Lord? On the overhead, number one, you know and delight in his presence. Number two, do you have that two-way communication? Number three, have you lost your freedom but gained a new kind of freedom? Number four, believers who get to know God more also get to know other believers more. Look at 1 John 1, 7. If we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Yeshua, his son, purges, cleanses us, purifies us from all sin. Fellowship with other Yeshua followers. A deeper community with other Yeshua followers goes along with a deeper relationship with God. They happen together. Why? In his book on the four loves, C.S. Lewis has this chapter on friendship. And he tells a story about three people, uh, Jack, Ronald, and Charles. Jack is C.S. Lewis. Uh, Ronald is J.R.R. Tolkien. Charles is Charles Williams. These All three of these were famous Christian authors and, and were best friends. Charles was the oldest, and he dies. And Jack says, C.S. Lewis, he says, that very, very sad. But now that Charles has died, I guess I'll take solace, and then now at least I'll have more, more of Ronald. Uh, but after Charles died, he, he realized he actually had less of Ronald. Why? Because there was a side of Ronald that only Charles brought out. And now that Charles was gone, Jack never saw that side of Ronald again. And he began to realize it takes a whole community to know a person. Even just a regular human being. It takes a whole community to draw out all that's within a person. Truly know someone in all their dimensions. You need to know them as they're surrounded by other people. Uh, how they interact with, with everybody. Uh, because there are sides of that person that, that won't come out just, in a, just in, in a relationship with you alone. It takes a community even to know a regular human being. How much more does it take a community to know Yeshua, the Messiah, the Son of God? And therefore, the more you want to know God, the more you need to know other believers as well and fellowship with them. And finally, on the overhead, one last thing. You know God, if you know God, you'll, help, you'll, have, you'll delight in his presence. You'll have two-way communication. Uh, you'll be willing to lose your freedom to gain a greater freedom. You'll desire relationships with other believers. And then finally, number five, you'll want other people to know God too. Look at 1 John 1, 3 and 4. We proclaim to you what we've seen and heard. Why? So that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Yeshua the Messiah. We write to you so that our joy may be complete. John says, my joy will not be complete until you have the same fellowship with God that I have. 
You know, in our secular society, it's considered narrow, it's considered even hateful to say there's only one way to God, through Yeshua. But that's exactly what the Bible says. 1 John 2, verse 23. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. And if you say, well, I have a relationship with Yeshua, but it's a personal, private matter. I don't tell anyone else about it. Uh, I don't want to offend anyone. Uh, you know, this helps me. Yeah, but I don't know if it's going to help somebody else, this relationship. Uh, and by the way, uh, don't, don't Jews already know the Father, even if they don't have the Son? No. Yeshua makes it very clear. No one comes to the Father but through him. If you deny the Son, you do not have the Father. And if you don't want anyone else to know what you have, then what you have isn't very important to you, is it? Or very powerful to you in your life. John wants everyone to know about Yeshua. Yeshua himself commands we, his disciples, uh, to go out into Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to make disciples of all the nations, of all the peoples on the earth. On the overhead, once you've tasted fellowship with God, you have to want everyone else you care about to know it also. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20. We are Messiah's ambassadors. We implore you on Messiah's behalf, be reconciled to God. And he goes on to say, uh, fear the Lord, the fear, the, the fear of the Lord, and, and Messiah's love compels us to preach the gospel of, of new life in Yeshua and forgiveness in, of our sins in him. So if you say, well, I have a relationship with Yeshua, but I never talk to anyone else about it. I don't think it's the same relationship that John's describing and Paul's describing. <laughs> it's not really fellowship with God. Fellowship with God is like fine wine. It tastes so good, you want to pour a glass for somebody else as well. It's just natural. It overflows from your new creation heart. It's like great music. If, you, if there's some magnificent music it's just that's moving you to tears, what do you want to do? You want to grab somebody else and say, listen to this. One of the ways you know you have fellowship with God is you want others to have it too. So, on the overhead, that's what fellowship with God is. Number two, that's, those are the five signs of, of what it looks like uh, in practice. And then finally, finally, lastly, number three, how can you have this? Most people, including maybe most people here in this congregation, you typically fall into one of three categories. Some of you, if you're honest, you're saying, I've never experienced this, what you're talking about, David. You know, uh, you may believe in God, you may believe in Yeshua, even believe in his deity, but when I describe fellowship with God, you say, I've never had that. A second group may say, I think I had that once, but it's been so long, I'm not sure anymore. And a third group of you say, I have that, but I need a lot more of it. Ephesians 1, verse 7, Paul prays for the Ephesian believers that the Lord may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. And these three groups are a majority of people in churches and in Messianic synagogues. So how can this glorious fellowship with God be yours? The answer is in the last four verses. Look at 1 John 1, 9 through 2, 2. Indeed, you only have a kind of generic relationship with God. You know, I believe in God in general, but you don't have this personal knowledge of him until you actually see what 1 John 1, 9 is, is really saying, what it really teaches. 
So again, here's the the famous verse. We confess our sins. He's faithful and he's just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We all know this verse. But most people read this and they think this is what it's saying. If you confess your sins, God is loving and merciful and he'll forgive you your sins. Everybody knows that, right? Is that how you read this verse? Because that's most people's default mode. If you confess your sins, God is loving and merciful, and he'll forgive you. A very skeptical French philosopher in the 18th century lived a very debauched, very licentious life, constantly criticizing and mocking God and people of faith. And on his deathbed, he was asked, aren't you worried? What if there is a God? And he said, no, I'm not worried. God will forgive me. That's his job. He's saying, I believe in a merciful God who overlooks sin. He'll forgive me. That's his job. But that's not what 1 John 1.9 is saying at all. People think 1 John 1.9 is saying, if you confess your sins at the end of your life, he'll forgive you and overlook your sins because he's, he's a loving and compassionate God and he's merciful. And note that this belief did not change this French philosopher's life at all. Not at all. Did this belief give him a, a personal relationship with God? No, no, did not. Did it affect the way he lived? No, not at all. And if that's your understanding of 1 John 1, 9, it won't affect your life either. Look at the next verses. 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Yeshua the Messiah, the righteous one. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins. These verses say that Yeshua is standing before the Father as your legal representative, if you will. So it may seem like it's saying, you know, whenever you sin, Yeshua, he looks down and he sees you, and then he turns to the Father, and if it's me, he says, David sinned again, but please be merciful to him. Please forgive him. And God the Father says, well, okay. <laughs> Many people think this is what First John 1.9 is saying. And if that's how you read it, it will not change your life. In fact, if you think about it, it should bother you. Because in the end, justice will overcome mercy. For example, let's say you're parking in the wrong place all the time in your neighborhood. Um, and the policeman who does your beat in your neighborhood, he, he kind of knows you. He lets you off with a warning. But if you keep on doing it over and over and over again, in the end, the policeman will say, you know, I like you, but I've got to give you a ticket. It's my job. <laughs> and I used to think, if Yeshua is constantly asking and begging for mercy every time I sin, what, at what point... Does God the Father finally say, I'm going to have to write David a ticket? <laughs> Yeshua, I've been forgiving this guy for years. But all the time, Yeshua, you come to me with, with David sinned again, David sinned again, please have mercy. And I would say to myself, how long can Yeshua keep this up? <laughs> At what point does God finally say, I must uphold my justice and my righteousness. Enough is enough. So this verse, 1 John 1, 9, it really didn't, did not comfort me. It didn't change me. But that's not what this verse is saying. Look carefully at what it's saying. It says, if you come to Yeshua and you confess your sins, that he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. It says nothing here about God being merciful or being loving. No, it says he's merciful and just. God will forgive this person who comes to him through the blood of Yeshua because he is faithful and just. If he doesn't forgive you, he's being unjust. Why? 
because Yeshua satisfied the demands of God's justice. He paid the price. And for God to demand another payment, a second payment would be unjust. And so what Yeshua is doing at the right hand of the Father, he's interceding as our advocate. He's declaring the price has already been paid. 1 John 2, verse 2. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Not only for ours, but for the whole world. The Greek word here for atoning sacrifice, it's a word that means propitiation. He appeases the wrath of God. The Hebrew is even better. The Hebrew word here is kapora, kapora. It's really a Yom Kippur sacrifice, kapora, Yom Kippur. It's, it's referring to Yeshua is our Yom Kippur sacrifice. Remember the sacrifice on Yom Kippur of the two goats? One is offered to the Lord, and its blood is sprinkled on the Holy of Holies. The other one, the scapegoat, the high priest, uh, lays his hands upon it and confesses the sins of Israel over it and sends it out into the wilderness. So as our atoning sacrifice, as our kapora, Yeshua is at the right hand of God, and he's saying, Father, they've sinned again, and the wages of sin is death. That's the debt. But look at my blood. Look at my sacrifice. I paid this debt. And for you, Father, to get two payments for the same debt would be unjust. So forgive their sins, and shower them with your grace, and receive them on my behalf. And therefore, Yeshua says, as our advocate... I don't ask for mercy for my clients, but I demand justice because their debts have already been paid. And that, my friends, is an infallible case. That's not just one more day with God saying, well, okay, I won't write your ticket today, but don't let it happen again. No, this is the justice of God, the righteousness of God, now all being on your side, on the overhead. And when you know that, Now you know that God was so holy that he had to punish sin. He could not overlook it. But he was so merciful, he was willing to come and take the punishment himself. To die for you and for me. This shows you that God is so righteous uh, that he had to die for you. Uh, He couldn't overlook sin. But it also shows you he was so loving, he was glad to die for you. If you wrongly see the Son of God as just having this sentimental, oh, well, it's his job, you know, the type of mercy, that won't change your life on the overhead. But the recognition of his costly mercy, it cost him everything. It cost Yeshua his life. That gives you this inner security. It shows you that he's involved with your life. It shows you a love that will change you. This self-sacrificial divine love will change you from a generic belief in God into a personal relationship with the Lord. Do you want to know the Lord? Then see the difference between the gospel and just living a good life. And submit yourself to this gospel of the life and death and resurrection of Yeshua the Messiah. You know, we said before, when two people get into a love relationship, they lose their freedom. When you fall in love, you give up your freedom for the other person. And the other person gives up their freedom for you. And as you grow closer, you lose more of your freedom. Uh, and, and, you may, okay, and you may say, yeah, I understand that as I grow closer to God, I lose my, the freedom I have to do my own thing. But what about the other side? How did God ever lose his freedom? Are you kidding? Look at the cross. At the cross. On the cross, on the tree, he lost everything. He lost all his freedom on that tree of sacrifice. 
for you and for you and for me. And you can fully trust someone like that. You can give your life to someone like that. And through that, you can know the Lord. Amen. Let's stand and pray. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord, for this great word on, on fellowship with you. Fellowship with God. Having a true heart experience with you. Through knowing Yeshua. Indeed, you tell us in your word, this is eternal life to know you and Yeshua the Messiah. To whom you sent. Yeshua, I confess today, knowing you is everything. This is my prayer, Lord. To know and to love you more and more every day. Lord, take away my heart of stone. Give me a heart of flesh. Place your spirit, the spirit of Messiah within me. Melt the hardness of my heart with your presence, Lord Yeshua. Let your truth shine in my soul. Yeshua, help me today and every day to delight in your presence. Help me to experience and delight in your presence so much that your absence is unbearable. Lord, I desire more than anything else to daily commune with you. This two-way communication, praying to you just for the sake of being with you. And hearing you speak to me through meditating on your word. Yeshua, I surrender to you. I give up my freedom for you. Through my freedom to do my own thing. But I gain a far greater freedom of knowing you. Lord, help me also to reach out to other believers. To share with them this joy of fellowship and community. To not be a lone ranger. Help me to share my faith with non-believers. And all this is possible, Lord, only because you, Yeshua, are my advocate. You, Yeshua, are my atoning sacrifice, my keparah. You paid the price. You lost your freedom to me, for me. And now I fully surrender myself to you. And I pray this in your name, Yeshua. Amen. Shabbat shalom.